daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, China's top leader has met with visiting California governor to partner on climate agenda. China has deployed its youngest ever crew of astronauts to the country's space station. And Donald Trump ally Michael Johnson has been elected as the U.S. House Speaker after a long-running gridlock. EU says it is looking to the future with the launch of the bloc's Global Gateway Forum. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." Chinese President Xi Jinping has met with visiting California Governor Gavin Newsom to discuss collaboration on tackling climate change. Xi Jinping called on the U.S. and China to strengthen cooperation in promoting green development and making this area a new highlight in the bilateral ties. The Chinese leader also said he highly values exchanges across various industries and sectors, as well as subnational cooperation between the U.S. and China. In the meantime, for his part, Gavin Newsom emphasized about the role of accelerated climate action and subnational cooperation between California and China. This meeting was part of Gavin Newsom's ongoing week-long trip to China. So joining us now on the line is Professor Yao Shujie from Chongqing University. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor. Hi. So actually, this particular meeting between、uh, President Xi Jinping and Gavin Newsom was beyond the expectation of many observers early on. So what do you think?、Uh, the fact that this meeting has happened tells us about China's. Attitudes towards the visit by Gavin Newsom this time around, as well as say、uh, China's attitudes towards issues like climate change. Ah,、uh, this visit and also receiving the very high-profile、uh, exception by the Chinese president、uh, reflect China's willingness to have、uh, communication with、uh, the U.S. authority, even at the regional level. Uh, it actually sends a very strong signal that、uh, the U.S.-China relationship is still very important, at least on the China side.、Uh, so the, the, the foreign minister is also going to visit the United States. So the, the Chinese government, although、uh, the president actually had, haven't actually met, but I think、uh, some sort of、uh, exchange at the, at the lower level, at、mm. the regional level. With China, China is still very welcome. As for the the talking point, I think the governor of California can only talk about the climate issue because the other issue, ah,、uh, they can also discuss, but it's、uh, relatively less、uh, relevant in terms of the political importance. So having having a, a discussion on the climate change actually give a reason, ah,、uh, for China to open. Uh, a small tunnel, in my view, of communicating with the, the U.S.、Uh, authority, and it is very good that Gavin, the California government lead this、uh, initiative,、uh, mm. spending is going to spend a, a, a week long in China, so that some of the message could be get、uh, sending back to the U.S. to other、uh, political peers in the United States or even to the higher. Authority by the、mm. uh, by Biden administration that China is willing to cooperate、uh, whatever issue I think in this time、mm. is the climate issue, which of course very important. Yeah. So Jerry Brown, a former California governor, is now leading this California-China Climate Institute with the University of California Berkeley. He recently said to media. That it is more important than ever for California to maintain good relations with China, because if the U.S. and China do not collaborate on the issue of climate, then there will be some real troubles. How would you look at his point here? Yeah, China and the United States are the two largest emissions uh, of uh, carbon dioxide and other pollutants、uh, into the air. 
uh, of course, China is a, is a larger emitter, but China has a bigger industrial, in, industrial sector. So the collaboration between the United States and China in terms of climate change and emissions are critical because they have to come to a consensus that both economies have to, uh, have to take tremendous effort in order to contain the continuing emission of carbon dioxide into the air. California happened to be the largest um, state in terms of economic activity, in terms of technological innovation and many other initiatives. We have been leading the United States mm. in different, uh, different areas. So cooperation between California and the, and the Chinese uh, region, I think, is very important, not only uh, to come to a consensus about how things can be done and, and how it can be managed, uh, but technologically, I think, uh, climate change issue uh, have involved quite a spectrum of uh, technological uh, innovations. Uh, both Chinese, Chinese and also the Americans, they are doing uh, lots of research in this area. And California, as the economy and technological powerhouse of the United States, certainly have a very uh, important role in the process. Mm. So, realistically speaking, Professor, in your observation, how how do you think California and China or some uh, Chinese regions can strengthen their collaboration and uh, cooperation in promoting, say, green development? If we take a look back uh, upon the history, uh, the, the most recent history, in 2013, for example, there was a partnership signed which established the policy exchanges between Beijing officials and the California Air Resources Board. And uh, basically, over the years, I think regulators from both sides have uh, credited that particular partnership with helping China develop its own you know, zero emissions vehicle mandate and helping reduce the air pollution here in, in the Chinese capital, for example. But back then, it was largely a scenario in which China or the Chinese side learned knowledge and technology or know-how from California. What about the situation right now? Do you think right now China is in a position to share something more advanced with California as well? Yes, I think over the since the, the signing of the agreement, I think China has made huge technological progress. Uh, so does the California uh, enterprises. Uh, in terms of uh, technological uh, innovation, particularly the uh, electrical uh, vehicles and related uh, technology, uh, the, the, the electrical battery and so on and so forth, China has established the most comprehensive uh, production and technological chain not only within the domestic market, but also has extended to the rest of the world. So in this case, I think California certainly initially have a very leading role and they continue to do so. But China has put this in practice, uh, particularly by building up a very strong uh, industrial sector, mm. which involves quite a lot of uh, manufacturing activity in China, especially over the last decade. The demand for vehicle in China has been uh, rocketing. Uh, it is now the largest uh, vehicle uh, market in the world. It's about 1.5 uh, times of the United States equivalent. So uh, China has been doing a lot of effort not only to increase the efficiency of uh, of uh, you know traditional vehicles, but also created the the new sector, the the EV sector, which is uh, now the leading industry, not, not only in China, but also in the world. Mm. Of course, apart from this kind of technological progress, China has uh, increased the proportion of renewable energy, the total energy consumption. Uh, it's now, uh, the, you know, the, the fossil fuel have accounted about just 60%, but in, in the previous decade, it's over 70%. Uh, and likewise, the renewable energy sector has increased from 9% to 25%, mm. which is still growing. So uh, China is, in every aspect, is making tremendous effort to 
to uh, reduce the dependency on fossil fuel, to increase the efficiency of the use of fossil fuel, and yeah. also uh, developing the technology of carbon capture as well. So uh, overall, these are the, the, the kinds of new technologies that are taking place. Mm. So on the other hand, Professor, if we really take a look at this, for example, this flagship uh, Inflation Reduction Act in, in the United States, there seems to be a clear intention in Washington, D.C. to, you know, to move to compete with China in these, you know, green investment or green technology related industries like solar panel and electric vehicles, etc. So do you think this situation we are talking about in Washington will be a hurdle to the development or to the to 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 the green development cooperation between California and China, especially in terms of you know inter international or cross border flow of technology. Yes, I think the, there's a tremendous dilemma uh, between the United States and China. On the one hand, uh, technological cooperation will certainly benefit China much more than the United States. Of course, the United States. The United States would also benefit, the, although they are in a much higher level. And the politicians, they think, um, you know, this technological issue in a political way, uh, because they fear that if China master uh, too much advanced technology, then sooner or later China would overtake or even match up with the United States. And this is some sort of unwillingness of the, the Biden administration follow. Uh, Donald Trump, they have an idea of, of competition which is not necessarily uh, uh, you know, uh, meaningful for the kinds of technological cooperation that we are talking about. But in terms of the green development, I think maybe there's some area the United States and China can uh, make some sort of compromise because the mutual benefit is not only for the two countries but also for the, for the entire globe. Like the, the the issue of uh, climate change is so important, it's threatening all the human beings. And if the largest economy, the largest technological uh, generating power, uh, United States and China in this case, they refuse to cooperate, I think they would certainly slow down the technological progress, which is desperately needed by the human being at the moment. So. China, in, in, in my view, the government is highly aware, so they, they are quite willing to open the door in terms of this kind of cooperation. The question is, uh, as the country of the United States, they may not be willing to do so, but uh, California, as the a member state of the United States, which is, as I say, the leading, the most powerful economic and technological powerhouse in the United if, uh, you know, at the regional level, they have their own authority to cooperate with China, I think that could be a very welcome uh, change. Mm. Thank you very much for putting this issue into perspective. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Professor Yao Shujie joining us from Chongqing University. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. The Shenzhou-17 spacecraft has successfully docked with China's space station. The Shenzhou-17 blasted off on Thursday with three crew members on board. Tang Hongbo, Tang Shenjie, and Jiang Xingling will stay in orbit for about half a year. Shenzhou-17 is the 30th flight mission of China's manned space program. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Zhang Fan, Associate Professor of Astronomy with Beijing Normal University. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. So what do you think is at stake here when we talk about, say, this is China's youngest ever crew to man a mission to the, to the space station? Right. 
Um, so what this really signifies is the uh, the fact that the uh, the manned space program in China is um, is going through the the astronauts really quickly, uh, meaning that the uh, the missions are really packed together and there are a lot going on. So they're now trying to train the third generation of astronauts. Um, in the past, it's the more experienced first and, and sometimes second generation astronauts uh, going up there. But the uh, the first generation, they're pushing towards their 60s. Um, so they won't remain active for much longer. So you need the new generation to fill the gaps. Um, so from the last time on, uh, it has been one senior experienced person um, picking up two novices to train them. Uh, and this time in particular, the two novices are both pilots. So you can see they're trying to train the, the commanders that would really be, be able to, to command the, the mission later on. So, so they're the most important of the, of the astronauts uh, to get trained first. So, so you can see that, that there's, there's a large training aspect to it, which is why uh, you know, everybody's so young. Mm. So do you think it will be a trend in the future that um, crews to the space station will be younger and younger? Um, I think that's definitely going to happen. Um, so the, the two very young pers- people already, uh, they're the third generation. And this year, uh, by the end of the year, there will be the fourth generation of astronauts coming after having finished the, the selection process and begin training. Um, so so it's, it's only get younger and younger. Um, the reason why that happens is because there's so much more going on, you know, besides the, uh, the expanded space station, which will be able to host more astronauts at each t- individual time anyways. Um, there will also be lunar landing and, and all sorts of manned space programs going on. Um, so we really need a, a very large uh, astronaut pool to, to, to be able to rotate between the uh, between duties. Mm, okay, so... I guess that's somehow related to my next question because when we talk about uh, the leader of this particular mission, Tang Hongbo, he was on his first crewed mission to the space station back in 2021, and his return this time around has also set a new record for the shortest interval, let's say, between two space flights missions by Chinese astronauts. So... Um, what kind of um, requirement, physically or mentally, or any kind of um, preparation, do you think will be needed for such a short period of interval? Right. Um, so usually, because you lose bone mass and, and your hard muscles weaken when you're in space with zero gravity, um, you need a period of the time to recover on the ground to, to return to full health. Uh, that usually takes up to um, six months. And then traditionally, you would uh, you go through another two or three years of training to go into the next mission. Uh, so this time he went through one and a half years. So that's uh, that's slightly shorter than than the uh, than usual. And what that tells us is that the uh, the Chinese astronaut uh, program uh, is gradually learning the ropes. For all these uh, past missions, they learn how to return um, in, in in the most efficient, quick way. So the wait period sort of gets gradually push down uh, and they can go up more frequently with shorter intervals. Mm. So in addition to performing those various regular-based, you know, in-orbit space scientific experiments, the Shenzhou 17 crew members will also conduct some maintenance work on the station in order to fix some minor damages from space debris because it has been reported that some solar wings, I guess, of the space station have been hit by some tiny space particles for several times already. So, in, in your understanding, um, how important is this maintenance work and what could be the difficulties during this maintenance process? Right. Um, so, so, this is to be expected. It is nothing to be alarmed of. Uh, you know, we know there are debris up there and, and they do from time to time, you know, they hit micro debris, um, hit the, uh, the solar panels. Um, and this maintenance work is not strictly necessary in the sense that you have to do it because the, um, the redundancies um, of the, the space station is, in terms of power supply is, is quite big. Um, the, the solar panels, they're the newest gener- generation of, uh, of gallium uh solar panels, highly efficient. Um, so there's more than enough of them. 
um, to supply the, the, the electricity. Um, however, um, because there, there's a training aspect um, to this whole mission, um, it's good to have the, uh, the future commanders do some difficult work uh, outside of the, the vehicle. Um, so from that, that, that point of view, they might as well go out there and, 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 and do some difficult work. And why, the reason why it's difficult is because it's not one of those installation projects where the, uh, the stuff you're going to put in place, they're already built to fit perfectly. It's not plug and play. Um, you know, the holes, you don't really know what the holes look like um, perfectly. Uh, and you have to mm. sort of make real repair, make real handiwork in space in a glove that you can't really move very flexibly. So, so that, that's, that's a whole different struggle. Mm. So in the meantime, members of the previous Shenzhou 16 crew, including a, a university professor from uh, Beihang, have been on orbit since June this year so they are now basically uh, making preparation to return to the earth after receiving the shenzhou 17 crew members so what has the shenzhou 16 crew accomplished over the past few months or so right so they are the first uh, crew for the uh, so-called regular operation and development phase of the space station which means after completion uh is used as a space lab so their main job is to run experiments so they've done like 70 experiments um, and a lot of uh, human and sort of human comfort um, equipment engineering. So just just improve the environment uh, quite a bit. And more more importantly, they were up there to, um, to streamline and improve the procedure for supply management uh, in space. You know, supply it's it's the most single most important thing, right? Um, the logistics. Um, so they. They worked out the inventory, how, how to do the inventories, how to rotate, how to how to move things around, uh, how, how to keep things, the logistics clean, nice, streamlined, and everything. Um, that really reduced in the future. That would that would prolong the, uh, the 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 duration of the supply that can last. And it would reduce the uh, the, the need for for outgoing um, supplies and all that sort of thing. Um, it would improve the, the the working efficiency of the space station tremendously. So that's that's what the first regular crew uh, would have to do and they've done that uh, quite well mm. so apart from completing the building of the space station in the near term we understand in a longer term china is also planning to send a crewed mission a manned mission to the moon by the year 2030 and also say build a base under on, on the surface of the moon so does the Shenzhou 17 mission have anything to do with this long-term, with these long-term goals? Right. Um, so the, uh, so the, the crude mission is, uh, is, is mostly determined that it's going to go ahead. And the base is still under study. Um, you know, that the first stage will probably be complete by uh, 2033. Uh, so that's still some time off. Um, so from that point of view, this, um, the Shenzhou 17 mission does not directly contribute um, to the lunar mission. However, it is one of the things, um, one of the stages uh, that, that you need to go through to be able to train enough uh, pilots. Uh, and then from a sufficiently large pilot pool, you can now do the selection for the best of the best um, that, that, that will go to the moon. That's a much more difficult journey. And also, a lot of the experiments going on in the um, in the space station carried out by Shenzhou 17 crew, they will be related to uh, biology, human physiology in space, uh, as well as, as other sort of engineering aspects of uh, of space faring. Um, mm. So all of that will eventually contribute to the uh, to the lunar mission as well. Mm. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Zhang Fan, associate professor of astronomy with Beijing Normal University. You're listening to World Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. In the United States, an ally of Donald Trump has been elected as the Speaker of the House of Representatives, putting an end to a few weeks of congressional paralysis. 
All 220 House Republicans have voted for Mike Johnson from the state of Louisiana. No Democrats have backed his bid. Johnson was the fourth Republican speaker nominee after Kevin McCarthy was ousted at the hands of an intra-party rebellion. So joining us now on the line is Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Thank you very much for joining us, Ina. So until now,、um, Johnson has been a relatively lower-profile member of the Congress than previous nominees, including Steve Scalias,、uh, Jim Jordan, and Tom Emma. So first of all, what do we know about this person? Well,、uh, he's、uh, only been in the job for seven years and only in politics for nine years.、Um, before that, he was、um, writing editorials uh, and uh, for a、uh, the Baptist、uh, Southern Baptist Convention、um, for about two de- decades. He's extremely religious.、Um, God, guns,、uh, Donald Trump.、Um, that's kind of where he is.、Um, very low key.、Uh, you know, he's he's not. Personally aggressive at all, as you can see、um, if you watch、uh, some of his debates. But he is extremely hardcore when it comes down to beliefs. Doesn't like、um, LGBT.、Uh, he doesn't、uh, believe in any kind of marriage except a, a woman and a man.、Um, and very, very, very much、uh, wants to mix God into government.、Hmm. Okay, so why do you think he could be elected this time around? And do you agree with some of the analysis that his election represents a show of unity for the Republican Party? No, it's not really unity. I mean, it, there is a show.、Uh, the moderates basically gave up.、Um, the, the, Yeah, he's really、uh, very much in the Trump camp,、uh, and he's very close.、Uh, Getz was、uh, encouraging him to run,、um, uh, but I think the moderates just basically said this: this travesty has to end. If we're going to、uh, make a, you know, our play in the next election, we have to look like we can govern.、Um, they also are very mindful that、um, you know they have aid to Israel, they have aid to Ukraine. Um, they have the looming debt crisis on November 17th.、Uh, negotiations haven't even begun.、Um, it's going to be very, very hard.、Uh, but there's no unity. Nothing has changed whatsoever. You still have,、um, you know, a small group of、uh, the、uh, this Freedom Caucus, which is trying to literally wag the dog、uh, mm. in terms of uh, making uh, the Republicans adhere to、uh, their their personal strategies. Hmm. So, what do you think is the、uh, fundamental reason or the fundamental cause of this so-called ideological division within the Republicans, if it is well, still there? Yeah, it's still there, and, and it, what it comes down to is, you know, it, there's a part of it is emotional. Uh, there are people who just really believe that the debt is too big,、um, but these are the same people who think that you should cut taxes. So, you know, basically every time you've had a Republican administration get in there and have the ability to cut taxes, the recession has followed.、Um, but that doesn't seem to bother them、um, in terms of economics. They they say, oh, it's just common sense. If you put more money back in the economy, it'll all work out. Just trust the market. Um, the problem is government. It's too big. Gives too much money away. All this kind of stuff. And, and that, that's exactly where Johnson is. He's、um, very much, you know, he even said that he doesn't、uh, want states to ask for、um, aid, you know, like emergency aid, unless、mm. it's absolutely catastrophic. Um, he's really one of these guys who said you have to shrink the government. So you have,、uh, and then you have, of, of course, the the guys who jump on the bandwagon who see this as a political issue that they can exploit,、uh, that they can pretend that they're outsiders, that they have a magic wand、um, that you know can solve everything if you just let them have a chance.、Uh, on the other side,、uh, you have the moderate Republicans, generally guys who've been there quite a long time,、mm-hmm. who realize that government is a process. Is a process. It often involves compromise, and that you have to keep things running; otherwise,、uh, things fall apart. So you have、uh, the practical and the ideological, and they don't really see eye to eye.、Mm. Okay, so Johnson is actually among the most vocal proponents of Donald Trump's claim that the 2020、uh, presidential election was rigged against the Trump. Uh, actually, in the hours after the January the sixth attacks on the U.S. Capitol, he voted against certifying、uh, Joe Biden's electoral college victory. So, how do you think 
him serving as the House Speaker might affect、uh, the 2024 presidential race. Well, get get ready for the circus. <laughs>、uh, you, you have a situation. He wasn't alone in, in voting against the certification. There were 126 of、yeah. his fellow Republicans who also、uh, voted against it. He was a little unique in that he he organized this what's called an amicus brief. That means a friend of the court brief. So when、um, they sued to say that the election uh, results uh, should be overturned by the Supreme Court, he got a a whole bunch of、um, Republicans to sign on to this friend of the court brief, basically saying, "Look, you know there was so much turmoil. You should just give the election to Donald Trump." Um, he didn't cite any proof.、Uh, you know, it wasn't constitutional. He was told it wasn't constitutional, but he went in ahead and did that. So, for a guy who's only been in the political game for nine years, he he certainly is、uh, more than happy to、uh, <laughs> engage in politics over the law、uh, mm. or over、uh, any kind of factual basis.、Mm. Now, some people say just like Trump. Johnson is now representing a threat to the U.S. democracy. What is your take about this? Well, you know he, he's he's the Speaker of the House.、Uh, he's been voted in by the majority, and the majority was voted in by the、um, voters of the United States.、Uh, you can talk about it was gerrymandered, and you know that the Republicans、uh, do things to make sure that they have more、uh, votes in the House and Senate.、Um, but in the end, it's the American system. And、uh, he's there legitimately. No one's claimed that、uh, he stole an election or anything like that.、Um, but you know, you you have a situation where today, 23% of Americans believe that it might be necessary to take up、um, arms to, to to use guns、uh, to save、uh, the country. And you have people. Uh, like Johnson, who are really kind of fanning those fires, they they keep insisting that Donald Trump was is the duly elected president of the United States.、Um, he's you know he's pushing an agenda which is not only anti LGBT, but he's never met any、uh, bill that has Muslim in it、uh, that he hasn't voted down.、Uh, and he, he uses code words like、um, there you know I'm voting for the security of the United States. Uh, or I don't like terrorists. Well, I, I don't know how you equate somebody who a Muslim organization that is peaceful、uh, with、uh, terrorists, but for some reason he's able to make that connection. So he represents this uh, small uh, defensive group of、um, white American uh,、mm-hmm. religious, uh, you know,、uh, extremists, or you want to call them extremists,、uh, conservatives, who. Really believe that the,、uh, the United States should go back,、uh, you know,、uh, just till <laughs> before or after the Civil War, and、um, those were the good old days. And I, I don't know that he's necessarily going to be able to work、um, with a, you know, a, a Senate that's controlled by the Democrats,、uh, a, uh, you know, uh, a. <clears throat> President who is a Democrat,、um, I think、uh, he does. He's very close to Matt Gates. They have already said that rather than compromise, they would rather、uh, let the the whole、uh, government stop.、Uh, they think this is a good thing. It's a way of quote starving the beast.、Um, uh, it will result in complete chaos.、Um, millions,、uh, tens of millions of people will will lose out.、Mm. Um, but you know, you you have、uh, things like this happening in Argentina.、Uh, one of the candidates says he's going to abolish their their currency and and yeah, start using a U.S. dollar.、Uh, that's the kind of thing that will see their economy、uh, come to a full stop within a few weeks. Mm. Thank you very much. That was Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. The European Union has launched a forum of the bloc's international infrastructure investment scheme. The Global Gateway is aiming to invest 300 billion euros into worldwide infrastructure development by the year 2027. And speaking on Wednesday at the first ever edition of the Global Gateway Forum, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said this particular initiative is delivering some positive results. So joining us now on the line is Helga Zapp-Larouche, founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based economic and a political think tank. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes. Hello. Good day. So. 
What do you think has really prompted、um, EU officials to launch a designated forum for the global gateway? Well, I think it is a belated effort to counter China's influence.、Um, you know, you had just the third forum of the BRI, and、uh, could look back to ten years of extremely successful transformation of many countries. Through the projects of the Belt and Road Initiative, so the Global Gateway、um, basically is is an effort to counter that, but they are calling it themselves a geopolitical instrument. So the difference is that the Belt and Road Initiative、uh, clearly has proven, and that's a fact, you know, that that is proven, has been a leverage to Alleviate and even eliminate poverty in the countries who are cooperating with the BRI,、uh, enabling many countries to leapfrog even to a modern level of infrastructure. And the global gateway, unfortunately, I cannot see anything other than an ideologically motivated effort to impose the green agenda.、Um, you know, the、mm. uh, if you look at the details of it. It's all green energy. It's 500 million for、uh, renewable energy in Vietnam, 400 in Bangladesh, 300, 246 million in Cabo Verde.、Mm-hmm. But they are especially concerning Africa. It is、uh, especially nasty because they want Africans to have these investments in renewable energy to then produce with solar or wind. Hydrogen, which is then supposed to be exported to Europe, so it's not aimed at the development of Africa. It's it's aimed to solve the energy problems of Europe. Okay, so putting aside,、um, if we put aside the say ideological lens of this question,、uh, realistically speaking, when we talk about EU initiating、um, infrastructure investments globally. What do you think could be the strength of the EU, and what could be the shortcomings? Well, I think the the strengths I hardly can see it, but you know I think it's good if the EU starts to think about infrastructure at all, even if I think that their theoretical basis of doing so is is、uh, is flawed.、Um, <clears throat> but I think you know anything which which thinks about taking care of the world globally is a step in the right direction. But the shortcoming clearly is the financing. There have been efforts to have such infrastructure programs by the EU before, and they all flopped because they all depended on private、uh, financing. And infrastructure per se is not profitable for、mm. private investors、uh, because infrastructure just creates the precondition for industry and agriculture to flourish. So mostly, these financing schemes have not functioned in the past.、Mm. So, like you alluded to earlier,、uh, this、uh, global gateway is seen by many people as EU's answer to the Belt and Road Initiative. So, if this initiative can somehow manage to take shape in the foreseeable future, in your understanding, what do you think its relationship with the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, will look like by then? Rivalry or complementary? Well, I think you know the EU is in a difficult、uh, situation because on the one side they want to contain the influence of China, but on the other side they don't get such a good deal from the、e, from the United States. At the recent EU US summit,、uh, you know, it basically fell apart to abandon the threat of a punitive tariffs for、uh, European steel and aluminium. They could not get. Uh, access to the Inflation Reduction Act for the European car industry, so that it looks really bad for them. And the trade war with the United States could could easily be the result. So it would be in the fundamental interest for European countries to cooperate with the BRI, and it would just take the mental step, so to speak, to say, okay, let's put geopolitics behind us. It's a it's a Evil policy in any case because it tends to lead to wars, and why not pick up on the many offers coming from China 
you know, on the Global Development Initiative, on the Global Security Initiative, and the BRI to just find a way of cooperating for the benefit of everybody. Mm. I know that there are many members of the EU who are thinking in this direction, but it seems that the EU bureaucracy somehow uh, is, for the most part, and even there is opposition uh, against von der Leyen, for example. Mm. Uh, but it seems to be that there is a big difference between the European nations and their wish to cooperate with the BRI and the EU bureaucracy in Brussels. Mm. So we still have about like 90 seconds for this dialogue with you today. I mean, on the micro level, over the years, the BRI has actually provided some pretty good business opportunities for European corporations like the, the Simons or the Deutsche Bank uh, in Germany. Then the other way around, do you think the global gateway by the EU is likely to offer any opportunity to Chinese uh, companies? I'm not aware of that that succeeded in the past. I think there was even a case of an investigation, uh, you know, that Chinese companies may have profited. I think the, you know, Europeans should really change their mindset on that and offer cooperation, you know. I mean, they're always talking about that China should open the Chinese market. I think it would be very profitable if they would just change their attitude and you know, offer equal opportunities to Chinese companies as well and give them a say about the business practice because I think there the Chinese way is much better than that of Europe so far. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Helga Zapp-LaRouche, founder of the Schiller Institute. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. The UN Capital Development Fund is launching a new digital platform designed to connect entrepreneurs from frontier economies with investors. The fund's Deputy Executive Secretary Zavir Mashan is in charge of establishing this particular platform. In a conversation with my colleague Xu Yawen, Mashan said over the long term, this platform will likely foster a dynamic ecosystem which accelerates economic growth and sustainable development. Let's take a listen to the conversation. Mr. Michel, can you firstly share with us an overview of the Agora platform and its significance as it approaches an official launch? Agora is a platform that starts from the, a necessity to try to connect capital with entrepreneurship in developing economies. And what we see as uh, UNCDF, which is the organization I represent, we see that there's not only the narrative that there's not enough capital that is basically reaching out to those economies, but I think what is missing also is that there's missing opportunities of pipeline that is being presented and there are missing channels that convey basically those opportunities to investors. So we have what we're trying to do with Agora is to develop a public good, which covers all the frontier economies and all the emerging economies, whereby basically investors can meet potential investees or potential partners in the direct space. And of course, it's a public good. So what we're trying is to entice that relationship and to reduce that gap that exists today. And we want to narrow it uh, through the through this web platform. Agora is described as a groundbreaking web platform dedicated to fostering entrepreneurship and connecting businesses with capital and expertise, as you just mentioned. So how does Agora aim to accomplish this, and what sets it apart from other similar platforms? What unique feature does it have make it different from other platforms? Yes, thank you for the question. So first of all, when we started, we started asking around and we talked to about 40 partners, 50 partners about this initiative and if it did make sense and to, to also ask if there was something out there that basically was answering to that need. And the answer was, it does make sense. And of course, there is a need and there's no let's say, tool that 
encapsulates basically what you intend to do in frontier and emerging economies. So the answer is yes, we want to go beyond just a list from on one side, names, addresses, and sectors, and on the same thing on the other side, which we have seen in other places. But basically what we're trying to do is basically is to qualify a company. So basically the data that is being provided by a company that is seeking financing is sufficient enough to be analyzed with an algorithm. And basically based on that, we provide an assessment of the company showcasing basically the strengths and weaknesses of that company. We also utilize AI, which is, of course, an evolution of something much more sophisticated than uh, than an algorithm, to process the information and present it in such a way that basically the entrepreneur has, let's say, the tools to engage with an investor. What we want to, let's say, to convey as a message that if you want to engage with investors, you need to prepare. And you need to prepare your data. You need to be aware of who you are, where are your strengths and weaknesses. And so we take the journey with the investors and the entrepreneurs to, to reduce that connection. So this is the basis of the, of the tool. There are many other functionalities, but we're seeing that basically with AI and of course algorithms, uh, we can process information, we can bring added value. And that's something that narrows even more that gap between investors and, and investors. And let me highlight one point. It's not just to provide an assessment of the company so that basically the investor has a better overview of what that company is and what it can offer, but it also is to generate an awareness on the entrepreneur that is trying to engage with an investor. And I think that's also a central element so that they know exactly how they're seen, how they perceive, and they can tailor their messages also to prepare for it based on standard practices that analyze basically who they are. We have learned that so far this platform was tested in only two countries. So how about in China for Chinese businesses and investors? How can they get involved with this platform if they're interested in? So we piloted the platform in Senegal and Uganda. At the time, we got about 500 companies that participated, about 50 investors. That was a one-month, let's say, pilot, and we wanted to have use cases deriving from it. From there, basically, we stopped basically the website, and now we're relaunching it on the 26th of October at the global level. So any actor that is interested in frontier emerging economy is more than welcome. As I said, it's a public good, and by definition, it's for free. Uh, we're not utilizing data for commercial purposes. On the contrary, we are the UN. And so going back to any Chinese actor, that is, first of all, you have two angles. Chinese entrepreneurs that are providing capital are interested in other markets and they're looking for pipeline, they're looking for leads. And so they can enter into the system, register as investors and look at companies that are in the markets where they're interested. That's one element. So that's in terms of expanding their footprint, establishing commercial relationship, investing in, in developing economies. And also you have the other side that you can have entrepreneurs in Chinese uh, secondary cities that are also looking for capital. Maybe they have less access than those that are less in, in, in metropolis and then also looking for opportunities and so they can create their profile and also engage. So the, the process is very simple. Once you create a profile, you can engage with that community and basically you notify the other side, an investor that you're interested in that connection. If the investor accepts your invitation, then you're connected. And we hope that, that from there, there is a relationship that has been initiated and hopefully will lead to an opportunity on both sides. And that's basically the, the rationale. An important element is also that we are engaging one by one with the governments because we want to make sure that this is a public good and we wanted to embed it in basically in the offering of the national authorities that are in that space of business promotion, but together also with the private sector. So there has been, for the launch, a conversation with 25 governments and their private sector ecosystem to bring them on board. Our intention is to go beyond that. And throughout the year that will follow the launch, we will talk to all uh, the countries that are so-called, let's say, emerging and frontier economies. And we're talking about a little bit more than 100 countries. So there is also that legwork that is important. I want to ensure that that's a central element of, of the platform in terms of its deployment. And of course, the, the, the idea that it gives to the users, because it's something that they own, and basically that is their added service. As you mentioned, Agora has established collaborative partnerships with organizations in emerging and frontier economies. What collaborative efforts does it have with Chinese financial institutions and organizations so far? And what's your plan? What's the next step for your platform to collaborate with partners in China? 
So first of all, uh, we were, and I was personally invited to the World Economic Forum in Tianjin this summer, and the idea was exactly to engage with the ecosystem that was present there, the Chinese ecosystem that was present there on the platform. There was some initial conversation. Of course, the platform wasn't finished. So really, the real moment is now. In two days from now, the platform is out there. We can have a different conversation than a conversation that is about an idea, about an intention. There's a platform that exists. And so we're open to any conversation with any private sector actor, or of course, public actor that might want to, to engage with us. We have about 42 entities that are public and private that are joining as like-minded institutions promoting Agora. And we want to expand, of course, this group. And, and I think that, you know, it's a good start, but I think we can do much more in terms of connecting the dots with, with other like-minded institutions. And we, of course, we would be happy to engage with more Chinese entities. That's uh, it's needless to say. The Belt and Road Initiative marks its 10th anniversary this year, and over the past decade, it has been an important driver of economic development and connectivity across the region. So in your view, how does Agora envision collaborating with banks and financial institutions involved in the BRI to further support startups and entrepreneurs and businesses in emerging and frontier economies? We're ready to start a conversation and to see how we can connect the dots and work together. I think that's that's the general message that I'm passing. In two days from now, Agora is a reality and any actor that has the same intentionality, which is promoting economic development, is, is more than welcome. And, you know, we are we will definitely uh, see how we can uh, work together. And so that, that that's an invitation to all the actors that listen to us and we, we will be embracing them along uh, the deployment of Agora. Xavier Michon, Deputy Executive Secretary of the UN Capital Development Fund, talking to my colleague Xu Yawen. That's all the time for this edition of World Today, a recap of today's headline news. China's top leader has met with visiting California governors to partner on climate agenda. Donald Trump ally Mike Johnson has been elected U.S. House Speaker after a long-running gridlock. EU says it is looking to the future with the launch of the Global Gateway Forum. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For more, you can follow us on Twitter, now known as X, at CGTN Radio. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.